Hi, my name's Alyssa. Thanks for watching today. Before we get started, we wanted to fill you in on our church. Here at Grace, we have a mission and a purpose. Our goal is to help people discover truth, decide on Jesus, demonstrate change, and deploy for others. If you're looking for a church, we would love for you to come be a part of what God is doing here at Grace. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. We would also like to invite you to one of our Sunday morning services. Check out ohiograce.com for a list of campuses and service times in your area. We have a great time gathering for music, hanging out, and learning about who God is and how that affects our lives. Thanks for watching, and we hope to see you here next week at Grace. Everybody doing good today? All right, uh, it's great to see everyone. God is, is doing things at Grace, growing Grace. Um, some of you may have noticed that there's kind of a, a glitch on, on the wall. We tore out the mezzanine. How many of you have kids and you've noticed this? We did some deconstruction there in the mezzanine wall in the gym and nothing's happened since. Anybody notice that? All right, well. Yeah, we hit a little glitch with one of the contractors and the architect. They've worked all that out, so things should be moving ahead. Uh, we do have uh, some images that are happening uh, in the factory. The, the uh, ship is being constructed, and so we're excited about that. It's all coming together, and, uh, and hopefully we'll see some changes every Sunday from, from here on out. But hey, remains to be seen. Last Sunday, had a great day. Uh, 227 men signed up to take the challenge uh, for Fight Club, so we're, we're excited about how that broke out. And then also, during our services in the morning, 11 people indicated that they were trusting in Jesus for the first time, and so we're also excited about that. And, and God uses us as a church when we collectively come together, and as we serve God here at Grace, uh, to make it a place where things uh, make sense to people, where they enjoy our people, our services, uh, they trust our child care, and then can focus in on what's being said and, and have receptive hearts. And so thank you for, for making all that happen. We are going through the book of John. And, uh, and we're doing that because John was there as an eyewitness with Jesus not only a disciple, but one of the inner circles of the disciples uh, as he followed Jesus, and he was there for everything. And so through John's words, and he wrote after the other four gospels were written, or especially Matthew and Mark, and through his words, we get to know Jesus better, and so we're working through the entire book. Last time we ended on chapter 14, and so we're gonna pick it up in chapter 15 this morning. And just to recap a little bit, about along chapter 13, there was a major shift. Jesus enters into Jerusalem for his last Passover. And we see all the things that happened there. Remember, uh, last Sunday we were talking about he was in the upper room and he washed the disciples' feet. He identified the betrayer. Uh, he actually instituted 
the Lord's table, communion, but John doesn't tell us that. The other guys do. But John focuses in, uh, in detail on the teaching that Jesus gave his disciples at, in those very last hours before he was betrayed, arrested, crucified, buried, and resurrected. So that's what's happening. So at the end of verse 14, by the way, this is the longest recording teaching of Jesus in the Bible. And it goes from chapter 13 through chapter 16. It's called, scholars call it the upper room discourse or the upper room teaching, but it's not all in the upper room, only about half of it is. And so at the end of chapter 14, he tells us that they leave the upper room, they walk out of Jerusalem, they actually sing a song at closing kind of the Passover deal. They walk out of the upper room through Jerusalem, out the eastern side, across the small Kidron Valley, and then up the Mount of Olives that kind of overlooks Jerusalem from the east. And as they're doing that, no doubt, they're passing through uh, vineyards and stuff. They're actually going up to a slope to a, an olive uh, orchard called Gethsemane. And so they're crossing over. They head up. No doubt they're passing vineyards. And then Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And so basically he's doing this teaching, probably passing uh, vineyards, as I said, as they're walking along. And he's saying that, hey, he's the vine. The father is the guy caring for the vines, doing the pruning. And then we are the branches. And he talks about how we can only bear fruit in Christ, and that if we bear no fruit, then we're not truly in him, and, and the, the vine dresser, the, the person working in the vineyard, then removes those dead branches, and, and they're burned, and if the branches are producing fruit, then he prunes them to make them produce more fruit, and that's what he does in our lives. And pruning, by the way, never pleasant, Anybody ever feel like you've been pruned by God? I mean, it's a weird way to put it, but yeah, it's not fun, but it's always for our benefit. So we have no fruit, we're gathered like dead wood burned. If we have a little fruit, we're pruned to produce more fruit. And if we bear much fruit, it says the Father is glorified. And then he tells us that we, um, we abide, and, and all this, by the way, he's talking about us abiding in him, which means remaining in him. Uh, dwelling him, living in him, doing life with him. And we abide in him, we abide in him by keeping his commandments out of love. And then he closes that vine talk with this in verse 11. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So he say, hey, I'm telling you all this stuff so that you as a believer can experience not only joy, but experience the fullest joy. Now, Jesus continues instructing his disciples, and here's what we're gonna look at next. He's gonna teach them that followers are called friends of Jesus, they are hated by the world, they are helped by the Holy Spirit, 
and their sorrow will be turned to joy. That's what we're going we're gonna to walk through next. So first, first of that, followers are called friends, not slaves. We'll pick it up in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father, I have been made known to you. So he's just saying, you know, slaves, servants, they do what they're told. But friends, they will cooperate and help and do what they're told, but they kind of have the inside scoop. They have more context. They know the why. 16 continues. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. So he's telling them, hey, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. He's given this command over and over that they love one another. And, and by the way, just to make this distinction again, God tells us as believers we are to love all people. But God makes a distinction that we are to love even as a higher priority fellow believers. He says that over and over in Scripture. And so now here is how he's describing his friends. He says, first of all, friends of Jesus love one another. I remember struggling with this as a, or thinking through this as a young teenager. Uh, I lived in southern Colorado, went to church, and I started learning this truth that, hey, we're supposed to love everybody, but when it comes to fellow believers, we're supposed to love them even more, and then trying to figure out how will this play out in my life? How? Because love is action. How will I love with action other believers? How am I going to do that? And maybe you've wrestled with that too. Think about that. How are you fulfilling Jesus' command to love with action other believers? How are you doing that? It's love God, love others, but especially we love other believers, especially those in our local church. How do you do that? So friends of Jesus love one another. Friends of Jesus obey Jesus. They keep his commands. Friends of Jesus know divine truth in that they understand. They're not like slaves. They get what's going on. They know what Jesus is doing. They get the plan. And then friends of Jesus have been chosen. He says, I chose you. And his followers are called friends, but now there's bad news. So, and, and, and then all of a sudden, Here's kind of the dark side of being a believer. He says, followers are hated by the world. Second thing, followers are called friends of Jesus, but followers are hated by the world. God intends, Jesus intends, that we as his followers, we are in the world, we are engaged with the world, but we are not of the world in that we do not follow the world system. We don't buy into that. And we are in the world engaged in order to produce fruit. So he continues in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. So Jesus is preparing them for what's going to happen, what they are going to experience after he leaves. He's telling them, hey, the world's going to reject you for the most part and reject your message. And I want us to think about that because that should apply to us. As believers, we would expect that the world would hate us. So now I ask the question, I want you to think about this just for a moment. Does the world hate you? Does the world hate you? And some of you might be thinking, well, no, I, I actually, I get along pretty good with the world. I mean, I, I don't know anybody that really hates me. I mean, I, I'm on a pretty good run here. Well, that may be because you are in the world and you are of the world. You are bought into the world system. You are living just like people in the world live. So they don't see any distinguishing marks of your life and how they live. And so that may be what's going on. If you don't feel like you're ever being hated by the world. If we as believers don't get a bloody nose once in a while, we're not living the Christian life the way God expected us to live it. That's basically what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, the world should hate us because we're living out truth and we're saying to people in a gentle and right, respectful way, as we're told in Peter, that we, we're telling people things that they don't want to hear. I'm not saying blast people on Twitter, you know, just wipe people out. That's not what I'm talking about. When we're interacting with people, with our friends, with our coworkers, we're pointing them to truth to help them. And a lot of times, they reject that. They don't like that. They resent it. We should expect that to happen once in a while. And by, by the way, if the world hates you because you're being a jerk, that doesn't count. All right, you get that, right? If the world hates you because you're being a jerk, that's because you're being a jerk, not because you're a believer. So God's calling us to live a life that's distinguished from the world. We're in the world. We're integrated in the world. We're rubbing shoulders with the world. But we're not of the world. We're distinct. We're different. We're following a different plan. We see the world a different way. So how a friend of Jesus sees the world and then how a, a non-believer sees the world 
It's like polar opposites. That's where this conflict comes in. It's completely different. Believers, we see the world as, hey, there, this is a just and right universe. It's just that we've all sinned and messed it up. And so all of us have sinned against our creator God. And because we have sinned against him and because God is just, there's a punishment for that that we all owe. And the punishment is separation from a holy God forever. And he is our judge. And then, but we also know the judge who says this is the, the right and correct penalty for sin for there to be justice in the universe. He also loves us so much that he took the sin penalty on himself for us. If we would just turn to him in faith, in belief, and humbly ask him for forgiveness. That's how believers see the world. Non-believers see the world in a totally different way. Non-believers typically will believe one way is that, hey, atheists believe, hey, the world is just a huge cosmic mistake and it's a big accident and we happen to be here and there is no meaning and there is no purpose and we just need to do whatever we want to do, chase our own happiness and just milk as much as we can out of life and then we die and we're worm food and that's it. Or... But, but you don't run into a lot of atheists anymore because there's so much evidence for God. So then people take the agnostic route. Okay, I cannot deny there's a God because there's so much evidence. So I'm just gonna take the position that, yeah, there could be a God, not even arguing that, but we can't know enough about him to actually do what he says. These people are just, yeah, I get there's evidence for a God and I don't wanna argue about it, but I don't want a God over my life. I don't want a God that judges me. Nobody can judge me. You know, we hear that all the time. Yeah, we have a judge. We have a creator and a judge. But they don't want that to be true because they want to live however they want to live without being judged. And, you know, they're always, oh, you can't judge me. You're judging me. Notice how they're judging others when they say, I mean, judgment happens all the time. We cannot live without making judgments. They don't see the inconsistency in that. And so now here we are, we've told a whole generation for a generation that they're just advanced evolutionary animals. And then we're surprised when they live out what we just told them that they were. That's what we see happening all around us today. There's a drift in our culture further and further away from God. You know, it, it's happening all the time. And, and we as believers, we are called to not drift with our culture. And, and I still think we do, but we shouldn't be drifting as fast. We should stand up against cultural drift and focus on God's truth. And we also want to make sure that we're teaching that to our kids because if we're not intentional about standing with the drift, we'll drift. How many of you played in the ocean? You're out playing in the ocean in the waves. Maybe you're doing a little boogie boarding or whatever. You're out there just, and then all of a sudden you look to the shore and, oh, they're way over there. How'd that happen? Because it sort of just pushed you over one way or the other. 
you know, and you don't even know it's happening. Then you have to work to kind of line yourself back up with the shore that you started on, and then you go back to playing and not thinking about it, and oh, hey, you're 100 yards down. Drift happens automatically. As believers, we stand against that. Again, that, that doesn't mean just blast away on Facebook, Twitter, social media. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we stand against drift. People see something different in us. When we have opportunity, we point them to Christ. We're in the world. We're not of the world. We love the people of the world. We don't buy into the world's system and how the world views money, sex, power, all these things. We don't view it that way. And that should be apparent by how we live. So how do we live in a world that hates us? How do we not drift? How do we make a difference? How do we bear fruit? What's the solution? Well, the next thing, followers are helped by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, right before he leaves, he keeps telling his disciples he's gonna die. They're just not comprehending this is gonna happen in a matter of a few hours. They're just having a hard time figuring that out. And so here's what he says about being helped by the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have, seen, because you have been with me from the beginning. And then we cross into chapter 16, verse one. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. So he's saying, hey, I'm not telling you this to bum you out, to make you sad. I'm preparing you for what to expect. I'm telling you the truth. Take off the rose-colored glasses. Here's what's gonna happen so your faith can remain strong. Verse two, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. We've already seen this once in John. Remember John chapter nine, the blind man, and Jesus, he didn't even ask for healing. Jesus just heals him. And then all of a sudden he's in trouble with the religious authorities. And then they start examining him. What's going on? What's going on? And he says, hey, well, I don't know. Some guy did this, the guy, the man called Jesus. And then they keep Talk, they circle back around, talk to him later, and then he's like, well, he must be, what do you say about that man? Well, he must be from God. He must be a prophet or something. And on and on it goes. But then finally, this man, he's in this position of defending Jesus. And what happens? Boom, out of the synagogue. And he knew it would happen. His parents knew it would happen, so they kind of back off. He can speak for himself because they're afraid of that because the whole world in first century Judaism, if you were a Jewish person, all connected to your ties to the synagogue. He's out. And Jesus is saying that's gonna happen a lot. Continuing that verse too. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. Here we have Paul, formerly known as Saul. That's exactly where he was, right? We know from the pages of, of scripture, from the history recorded in Acts, after the resurrection, that Saul's this Jewish guy and he's going around persecuting the church and he thinks he's doing a good thing until God converts him, gives him a new name, Paul. And then all of a sudden what happens? Then he experiences the persecution and he keeps experiencing persecution and he just keeps doing it and keeps doing it and he never stops. Verse three, I mean, he's, 
You know, he'd walk into a town and first go to the synagogue, Jews first, then the Gentiles, but typically he would be jailed, beaten, you know, and eventually he was killed. Verse 3, these things they'll do to you. I'm sorry, these things they'll do because they haven't known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Now, they've actually asked him this once before, but he's saying now when there's more to learn, now when it's go time, now when it's just a matter of a few hours, you're not asking anymore. Now it's gonna happen, verse six. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. He's taught this before. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he uses this word helper. In the Greek, that's parakletos. And that could be translated a lot of different ways. And it's like you're trying to cram more meaning into an English word that we have an English word for. Helper, counselor, advocate, friend, you know, legal counselor. All this is packed into this Greek word, paraclete. And that's what he, how he's describing the spirit as the paraclete. The spirit, he's saying the spirit can't come until Jesus has finished his work of being the perfect sacrifice for the world. So the sacrificial system that they've been doing for over a thousand years comes to a halt with the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb in Jesus Christ. And then when he sheds his blood, that's one sacrifice for all. That's what's happening. And then after his death and his resurrection, then his ascension 40 days later, the spirit comes. But after his death, his work will not end. It will actually increase around the world. We talked about this. We touched on this last, last week. The spirit being here will actually speed up God's work. So what's the primary evidence of us having the spirit? Well, there's fruits of the spirit. There's the attitudes, the change in our lives. But primarily, it's producing fruit. As in conversions. And so how does the Holy Spirit help us, how is that exactly? Well, I think it relates right back to us pointing people to Christ because here, here's what he's saying, verse eight. And he, the Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he's gonna explain these three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment, in a little more detail. Next verse. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, the most problematic sin for any human being is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. It's not our moral imperfections. We're, we're, we're all flawed, but that's not our biggest problem. Our biggest sin is when we reject the person that God provided for us, who died for us, and we say, nah, don't need that, not interested. And then that's concerning sin. Verse 10, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. The Spirit exposes the virtue signaling as false. 
compared with Jesus Christ's true righteousness who lived a sinless life and then willingly gave up his life to save us and then went away. That's righteousness. And then verse 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And he's talking about Satan. And if Satan's been judged, then everyone following his system, which become his followers, even though they don't understand that usually, will also be judged for just living for themselves and rejecting Jesus. And, and so we kind of cap, what, what all is Jesus teaching about the Holy Spirit that's gonna come as soon as he leaves and it's good that I'm gonna die? Not only that I just die because that kind of does the whole atonement for the world thing, if we would believe, but that I go away. And he's telling us, he's saying, well, the Holy Spirit empowers his followers even in persecution. Holy Spirit comes only after Jesus finishes work, his work and leaves. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment that we talked about. And not only that, now he's going to tell us the Holy Spirit reveals truth. Look at verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what's to come. So he's telling us, as we trust in God and follow God, the Holy Spirit will come into our life if we're a believer, and he will guide us in God's truth. So when we study the Bible, for example, we pray, God, through your Spirit, Help me understand, illuminate my heart that I will understand what's going on here, especially if I'm teaching it to children or adults or somebody else. Illuminate my heart so I get it, so I can teach it right. And he's saying all this in the context of Jesus knowing that he'll be tortured to death in just a few hours, less than 24 hours. And they still don't really understand that. So Jesus tells them, you know, they're just walking along in conversation up the Mount of Olives. It, it's dark. They're talking. This is a well-known area. And he's, he's just trying to get them ready for what's going to happen just in an hour or two with his arrest. And he tells them, hey, they're going to weep. But he's saying, followers will experience sorrow that's turned to joy, verse 20. And he kind of wraps up this way. He says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. And then he illustrates that with an illustration we all know. He says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. And we know what we're talking about, right? Or half of us do, maybe? So lady, any ladies in here that you are pregnant with your first child? I won't even ask. Let me just tell you something confidentially, right? Because I'm gonna be honest with you. You're getting ready to have your first child, it will be terrible. It will be awful. 
You'll hate it. It'll be anguish. You'll be mad at your husband. You'll, you'll, you're, you're gonna, you will not like it. And if your husband's there with you, he will be of no help whatsoever. I'm just telling you. Can I be honest? And by the way, when your baby comes out, don't be snapping pictures right away. Your baby will be ugly when your baby comes out. You know, give your baby a few hours before you start snapping the pictures, right? But after the birth, after the few hours, then you're rejoicing. Then it's great. That's what Jesus is telling us about. It's what we, we've all seen this happen. He says, verse 22, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. And this is kind of curious, verse 24. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Here's what he's saying. They've asked God for things. But he's saying, no, you've asked me for some stuff, but I'm telling you, you ask the Father in my name because you have a relationship with the Father because you are in me. So now all of a sudden, your request is, is like it's coming from a righteous son. He says, ask that way. And the purpose of our asking is joy. And God wants to do it because he's interested in our daily lives as we follow him, we'll have the joy that can't be removed. He continues in verse 35, he says, these things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of my Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Here's what he's saying. We don't have to pray to Jesus and say, hey Jesus, can you get God the Father to give us this? He's saying, because you're in me, the Father already knows you, already wants to give to you, already wants to answer your prayer that's in Jesus' name. So we don't have to say, hey, Jesus, can you ask the Father? And we also don't have to say, hey, Mary, can you ask the Father? Nowhere in Scripture do we pray to human beings. Hey, Mary, can you, do the, can you get the Father to do this? Or hey, dead saint person, hey, can you get the Father to do this? That's not biblical. And here Jesus is telling us that we don't even have to pray to Jesus, the God-man, and say, can you get the Father to do this? Because the Father wants to do what we ask in his name. We can approach him directly on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross for our behalf, where all of our sins have been removed in the eyes of the Father. Verse 28 continues, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. 
His disciples said, lo, now you are speaking plainly and you're not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. They think, they think that that day he's been talking about has already come. They think it's complete. But Jesus is, is saying, hey, you don't know quite what's gonna happen here in the next few hours. He says this in verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe Behold, an hour is coming and has already come. They're right in the middle of it. It's gonna happen right now. For you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. He's saying, hey, in a, in a few minutes, things are gonna get dicey. It doesn't promise us a pain-free life either. And then he wraps up chapter 16 with this verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Because of Jesus, we can be courageous. We can be bold. We can stand against the drift of the world. He's designed us to do that. He's enabled us to do that in the spirit. We can make a difference. We have purpose and meaning in our life. We come together, we bear fruit, we point others to Christ. Our life is changed by him and other people notice. And why is he saying all this? So we'll have peace in a world of tribulation, in a world of trouble, in a world of suffering. We have peace in Jesus, no matter what the world brings, because we know that Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus leaves his followers with peace, and one of the last things he does is he challenges us to be courageous and bold. And he's saying, basically, we're going to need courage and boldness as we confront the world, as we live in a world that's hostile to our beliefs. And they don't know it yet as he's saying this, but later that day, Jesus conquers evil, and he conquers death, and he pays for all of our sin if we'll just believe they didn't know it, but we know it. We know what happened. Why? Because we have the word. We have the spirit. We know that he accomplished all these things. He died to close the gap between us and him, between God's holiness and our sinfulness. He bridged the gap with his death, that in faith in him removes all of our sin. And so we can approach him with confidence and boldness when we ask him things that we believe are according to his will in Jesus' name, according to our purpose and the reason that we're here in our life. And the Father wants to answer those things, wants to give us the things we need to live in a world that's against us. Let's bow our heads and, and pray together.
Father God, we, we thank you for loving us and, and you don't just love us with emotion. Beyond that, you love us with action. That you allowed your son to come and die for us. No greater love. That he would allow himself to be tortured to death by his own creation in order to free us from our sin, in order to bridge the divide, the chasm, the gap between us and you. And Father, we thank you for that greatest gift. We thank you for that hope, that certain expectation that we have. We know what's next. God, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for watching, and we hope to see you here next week at Grace.